And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 835. Matthew 28. And let me pray for God's help before we begin. Pray with me. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's your word that you use to give us spiritual life and to transform us. We pray that that would take place now. Help me, Lord, to speak as when speaking the very oracles of God. And for all of us, we pray that during this time, the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight through Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Matthew 28, follow along as I read verses 16 through 20. This is the word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God give us ears to hear his word. If you've ever read books on, say, leadership or strategic planning, you'll know that there are these things called mission statements. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of a mission statement before. Everybody. A mission statement is a short phrase, maybe a sentence, which defines the purpose of a business or an organization. It's supposed to clearly communicate the goal that this organization, this business, is trying to accomplish. For example, here's the mission statement of Google. This is often held up as a clear, good mission statement. It says, the mission of Google is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So clear, you understand what they're getting at, what they're trying to accomplish. Well, many local churches have followed this approach, and they've tried to craft their own mission statement for their church. Uh, they try to put down in one sentence, one phrase, what they're trying to accomplish. And depending on the beliefs, the distinctives of these churches, these mission statements can vary enormously. In preparation for this sermon, I did a little searching around on the internet, and I ended up reading at least 100 mission statements uh, from churches. Some of these were very good, some of them not so good. And I want to share with you a few illustrations uh, to, to communicate that there is enormous diversity here among local churches as to what we're supposed to be being and doing. Something you'll notice as I call these up on the PowerPoints, uh, I've deleted the names of the churches. I, I did that because... I, Giving you the names might feel like I was making fun of them, because a lot of these are not exactly what churches ought to be. If, if anybody wants the specific name of the church, so you can track this down to uh, see that I'm telling you is true, uh, let me know. Uh, but these all are actual church mission statements of churches that are out there. And notice how they vary dramatically. But here are a few examples. First, the mission of our church is to grow in faith and share our faith in God with the world around us. Now, that's not terrible, uh, something about Jesus may have been helpful, but not terrible. Here's another one. The mission of our church is to impact the world by revealing God's heart and living Scripture's truth, empowered by God's Spirit, to bring those outside the care of the local church into a purpose-filled life of worship and friendship, releasing all who become his church into a lifetime of celebration, sharing, and service together. Uh, not Terrible, but it's a mouthful, uh, kind of going in all sorts of different directions, and it's certainly not the sort of thing that you're going to remember easily. Here are a couple that maybe aren't so helpful. 
Uh, the name of, or pardon me, the mission of our church depends upon me spiritually, economically, and physically. Now, that's true, but that doesn't really communicate at all what they're trying to accomplish. Here's a very, very specific one. You just have to ask, is it what churches ought to be trying to accomplish? The mission of our church is to establish a strong, evangelical, charismatic, and liturgical sacramental community of faith under the spiritual guidance of an Anglican bishop who has been consecrated according to the principles of apostolic succession. It's a real, that's a real church mission statement. Maybe my favorite one, this is audacious, but perhaps not entirely helpful. The mission of our church is to change the world. Uh, wonderful, uh, but what does that really mean? Well, all of this begs the question, what is the mission of the church? What is the church supposed to be doing? Uh, does the church exist to change the world? Is that our mission? Does the church exist merely to share our faith in God with the world around us? Should it be our mission to establish a liturgical sacramental community of faith under the spiritual guidance of an Anglican bishop? What really is the mission of the church? Now, in one sense, everybody's got some understanding of the mission of the church. They might not articulate it like we just looked at, but everybody's got some idea of what the church is supposed to be doing. So, for example, many today think the church is here to fight for social justice. We need to get out there and fight for a higher minimum wage or fight systemic racism or fight for better immigration policies, that sort of thing. That's why Jesus left the church on earth. Many think that. Others would say the church is here primarily to do humanitarian work, to teach the illiterate how to read, to dig wells in Africa, to get the unemployed jobs, to get free prescription drugs to the impoverished. That's the major task Jesus has given to the church. Again, many think that. And still others would say the church's mission is political transformation. It's to get as involved in secular politics as possible, to get Christians elected to high political office, to change our nation's laws so that they sort of resemble the Ten Commandments, and to basically turn our nation into a, a modern version of the state of Israel. Many see that as the mission of the church. Now, I'm going to contend that none of those things are the real mission of the church. None of those are the main thing we're supposed to be doing. While some of those are fine and commendable as an individual Christian, you know, you're free to get involved in those if you want to as an individual Christian. They are not the mission of the local church. They're not the primary thing we're to be doing and being. My message this morning is going to be fairly simple. I believe Jesus has already told us what we're to be doing. He's already crafted the mission of our church. And it's not the fight for social justice. It's not primarily to do humanitarian work. It's not political transformation, and it's certainly not to establish liturgical sacramental communities of faith under the guidance of an Anglican bishop. Because of that, we're not free to define the church's mission any way we please. Did you know that? If Jesus has already told us what the mission of the church is, we can't simply decide what we want to do. You know, you can't really say, I'm really into saving the environment. So our church is going to be all about recycling and fighting global warming. We're not free to do that. We can't say, you know, I'm really into politics and, and therefore this church is going to be a plit. We're not free to do that. Jesus has given us a mission and our role is simply to obey. Well, it's with this that we come to the next installment of our vision sermons. To begin 2022, like we often do at the beginning of a new year, we're spending some special sermons talking about foundational convictions. Foundational convictions that we want to be just part of the DNA of our church. Three weeks ago, we talked about personal Bible reading. 
Personal Bible reading, I believe, really is the heartbeat of a healthy Christian life. You simply cannot have an abundant, joy-filled, sin-fighting, bad habit-conquering Christian life if you're not willing to spend good portions of your time meditating on Scripture. That was our topic three weeks ago on the first Sunday of the year. Then for two weeks, we talked about family discipleship. And what we saw there is the way in which the family ought to be the primary context where children are hearing the gospel and learning the things of God. Practically what that means is that when a child is asked, where did you learn the Bible? Where did you learn about Jesus? Where did you learn how to live as a Christian? Their first answer ought not to be VBS, Sunday school, pastor, uh, but ideally mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, brothers and sisters, that sort of thing. That's family discipleship. And I'd encourage you if, you, if you weren't here for these sermons, please either watch them or listen to them, download them on your iPhone. They're all available on sermonaudio.com. For to a large degree, the health of our congregation is contingent upon all of us being committed to personal Bible reading and family discipleship. Well, today we're going to talk about a third foundational conviction, the mission of the church. Like Bible reading, like family discipleship, this is something we need to be on the same page about. If our church has a biblical understanding of its mission, a clear understanding of its mission, and if we're laboring together to fulfill that, I believe God will be pleased and our church will be blessed. So to begin our discussion of this entire matter of the mission of the church, let's look at Matthew 28. And the first point I'd like you to consider with me from this passage is how making disciples is the unique mission of every church. I think this comes out clearly in this passage. Making disciples is the unique mission of the church. And let's read Matthew 28, 19 and 20 again. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as I read the Bible, and as Christians have read the Bible for literally hundreds of years, this is what we're to be busy doing until Jesus comes again. This is our mission, making disciples, going out into the world, proclaiming the gospel, explaining to people who Jesus is, inviting them to respond, to personally trust in him, to make their profession of faith public through baptism, and then helping them organize themselves into local churches. That's our mission. And it's interesting that Jesus spells it all out here, how we're to do this. He says, first, go. Go, get out of your comfort zone, get out of your easy chair, get out of your cubicle, and go meet people. Build relationships, make friends, talk to people, invite them over for a barbecue or to play cards or something like that. You go. There's a little quote I have taped next to my computer at home that I try to read regularly to remind me, might remind myself of this, but I heard Tony Payne say a while back in an interview, you can't talk to people about Jesus if you aren't talking to people. Some of us need that encouragement, don't we? You can't talk to people about Jesus if you aren't talking to people. For some of us, the reason why we're not making disciples is because we just don't have any non-Christian friends. We don't know any unbelieving people. So maybe that's where you begin. Just open your mouth and start getting to know people. Build relationships. Build friendships. Get together for coffee, for lunch with non-Christians. And almost inevitably, Jesus will come up in conversation. But then, coming back to our passage, Jesus says, Make disciples. Again, tell them who I am and what I have done, that I have come to be the Savior of the world, that I have died and risen again, conquering death. Share with them the gospel message and invite them that if they'll turn from sin and embrace Jesus, they'll receive immediately the gift of eternal life. And then once they do that, once they trust in Jesus, again, Matthew 28, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
As we read this passage, this is the way in which you make your conversion public. If you've put your hope in Jesus, the way in which I tell that to the world is through water baptism. Water baptism does not save, but it is the proper way to tell the world that you're going to follow Jesus. But notice how disciple-making, it does not end there. It's not merely about evangelism and getting people converted and baptized. But what does it say? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So folks who have come to know the Lord, you then begin a journey of learning, learning everything that the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches about the Trinity and about the character of God and about the way of salvation. What the Bible says about the plan of God, about marriage and family and how to work and how to resolve conflicts and how to love your spouse and raise your kids and a, and a zillion other topics. That's the entirety of the Christian life. You learn the whole counsel of God and as you can see, Jesus says, you actually learn to put it into practice, to obey it. And then you'll notice, what does Jesus promise? As we do this, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we go forth into the world making disciples, Jesus promises, I'll be there with you. I'll sustain you. I'll bless your efforts all throughout this life until you make it to heaven. So this is the mission of the local church, and this is the mission of our church. The mission of Trinity Baptist Church is to make disciples. Not to fight for social justice. Not political transformation, not humanitarian work, not saving the environment, but making disciples. Proclaiming the gospel, teaching the Bible, preaching the gospel, and then praying that God's spirit would work, that people would be saved and united to local churches. That's our mission. I think authors DeYoung and Gilbert got it exactly right when they wrote this in their excellent book, What is the Mission of the Church? The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples, by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. Now a question you might have at this point is why would we take this passage and make this the unique mission of the church? I mean, what's so special about Matthew 28, 19, and 20 that this is our marching orders? I mean, there are a lot of other good Bible verses that we could use as a mission. Uh, for example, the Bible says, love your neighbor. It says, remember the poor. It says, care for orphans. Why couldn't we take those Bible verses, which certainly are the word of God, and make that the unique mission of our church? Well, let me give you three reasons why Jesus wants making disciples to be the mission of every local church. Three reasons why Jesus, our Lord and Savior, wants every church to make disciples their main mission. First, this command to make disciples is Jesus' final command. This command to make disciples is Jesus' final command. Just before he ascends to heaven, what are the final words he leaves with his church? doesn't have anything to do about politics or care of the environment or social justice, but go make disciples. Now, it's essential to realize where and when Jesus speaks these words. These words were not spoken at the beginning of his ministry, not at the middle of his ministry, not just before the cross, but when? After he has died and risen again and just before he ascends to heaven. And just before he goes back to his father's throne, what does he say? Again, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, it's interesting that Matthew is not the only biblical book to emphasize that this is Jesus' final command. Actually, universally, when you see Jesus just before he ascends to heaven, he stresses what I want you to be doing is making disciples. For example, in Acts 1, 8, Acts 1 8. Jesus said to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. We're going to talk more about that passage next week, Lord, or two weeks from now, Lord willing, as we continue our discussion of the mission. But the same thing could be said about the end of the Gospel of Mark, the end of the Gospel of Luke, the end of the Gospel of John. Universally, Bible authors emphasize that Jesus' last words before going to heaven are to make disciples. You might call it being witnesses, you might call it preaching the gospel, you might call it making disciples, but the idea is the same. You go into the world, teach people about Jesus, invite them to respond, and then organize them into churches. Now, I think we all understand that a person's final words, they have a special significance, a special gravity. I mean, oftentimes, and I've been there. Have you ever been the bedside of a person that's dying? Uh, oftentimes, they will weigh very carefully what they're saying. These are the words they want to be remembered by. If that's the case, realize the final words of Jesus have a special significance. And what are the words by which Jesus wants us to remember him by? Go make disciples of all nations. These are his final words before ascending to heaven. Quickly, a second reason why making disciples is the unique mission of every church. Making disciples is what the church does throughout the book of Acts. Making disciples is what the church does throughout the book of Acts. Now, if you've ever read through the book of Acts, this is manifestly irrefutable. When the church in Acts goes out into the world, they don't engage in politics, they don't try to change the laws of the land, they don't try to save the environment. But what do they do? They proclaim the gospel, they make disciples, and they organize local churches. Just to give you one example of this, listen to Acts 2.42. This is describing the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And day by day they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Making disciples is exactly what Peter does in chapters 2 through 12 of Acts. Making disciples is exactly what Paul, Barnabas, Silas, and Luke do in Acts 13 through the rest of the book. Again, they proclaim the gospel, they invite people to follow Jesus, and then they organize them into local churches. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, this, you could almost imagine this as Paul's personal mission statement. How does he put what he's trying to do? Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We pro proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I could easily spend the rest of this sermon belaboring this point. When the early church went out into the world, they had one mission. And it was to make disciples. That's how they understood the mission of the church, and that's how we ought to understand the mission of the church as well. Quickly, a third and final reason why making disciples ought to be the unique mission of every church. Making disciples is absolutely vital since heaven and hell are eternal. Different from every other activity, making disciples is absolutely vital since heaven and hell are eternal. Now, if it's really true that heaven and hell are real, and if they are eternal, that changes absolutely everything. That puts everything in perspective, and it sheds new light on what we do in this life. Remember what John said in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus, when he envisioned Judgment Day and every human's destiny, he described it this way, Matthew 25.31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
He will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into a eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If heaven and hell are real, that changes everything. And because of that, we can't waste time on things that don't have eternal repercussions. Now, like I said, there are many things a local church could devote its time, energy, and resources to doing. And many of these things are honorable. They are commendable. Building homes for the homeless is commendable. Digging wells in Africa is commendable. Teaching the illiterate how to read is commendable. Uh, getting free drugs, to uh, prescription drugs to those who need it are, is commendable. But if in the process you're not also preaching the gospel, teaching the Bible, speaking the word of God, the results of all of those other missions will be merely temporal. They'll only affect the here and now. And in this discussion, we can't forget Jesus' words in Matthew 8.36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I think we could apply that verse to some of these missions that we've been talking about. You could say it this way. What does it profit the American church to take over politics and yet for Americans to lose their souls? What does it profit the church to transform a culture but for the souls of the people in that culture to go to hell? What does it profit the church to fight for a higher minimum wage, but for those receiving that wage to go to hell? You see, making disciples is the only activity that actually affects eternal destinies. And what's more, you can find secular organizations that are more than happy to do all those other things. Making disciples is the only mission that will reap eternal fruit. Everything else, like wood, hay, and stubble, will be destroyed. But the souls of people will endure forever. Therefore, this must, this must be our main mission, to make disciples. Well, consider with me a second point this morning. Consider with me next how making disciples is the duty and the privilege of every Christian. Making disciples is the duty and the privilege of every Christian. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, all right, I'm with you. This is great, this is the mission of the church, and that's exactly why we pay pastors and evangelists and missionaries, so that they can go make disciples. Well, I'm going to contend in this point that that's a serious, serious misunderstanding of the Bible. Of course, there are pastors, there are evangelists, there are missionaries whom we financially support to make disciples. And yet, at the end of the day, this is a duty incumbent upon all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. In actuality, this is simply part of the basic job description of every Christian, to labor at making disciples. Take another look at Matthew 28. I think this is hinted at here in Matthew 28, and glance back at verse 16. In Matthew 28, 16, God's Spirit says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now pause there. To whom is this passage, who's this passage describing? The eleven what? Disciples. Now, this is interesting because other places, especially after Jesus' death and resurrection, they're called apostles. Apostles, and yet here they're called disciples. You've got the original 12 disciples, who are then apostles. Judas obviously kills himself, so there's 11. So these are those 11, also known as apostles, but here called disciples. And what does Jesus say to these disciples? Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So 
So you see what I'm trying to say? Disciples are to make disciples. The disciples, in their role as disciples, are commanded to go out and make more disciples. It's as if Jesus is commanding them, reproduce yourself. What you already are, make of others. Commenting on this, author Don Carson writes this. Disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. The injunction to go make disciples in Matthew 28, 19 is given at least to the 11 disciples, but to the 11 in their own role as disciples. Therefore, they are paradigms for all disciples. It is binding on all Jesus' disciples to make others what they themselves are, disciples of Jesus Christ. This same principle could be demonstrated in many places in the New Testament. Think of Acts 11.19. In Acts 11, the disciples are scattered. And this, if you look at the context, is not talking about the apostles. It's talking about the other disciples. And in Acts 19, or pardon me, 11.19, we read this. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. So it wasn't merely the apostles, merely the pastors, merely the elders, but all the disciples, as they scattered, they spoke God's word. This is what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament. Certainly, there are pastors, there are elders, there are teachers who equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, and yet the New Testament envisions all Christians using their gifts to build up the body of Christ. The New Testament envisions all Christians getting to know non-Christians, loving them, serving them, pointing them to Jesus. And if you go back and read church history, this is how the church grew so dramatically in the first few centuries. You know, if you know your church history at all, you'll know from like 100 to 300, Christianity was persecuted, they're burning Christians on crosses, and yet at the same time, Christianity exploded. How did that happen? That did not happen largely through crusades and stadiums. Uh, it didn't happen largely through paid professionals. It happened largely through ordinary Christians getting to know, loving their coworkers, their neighbors, their, their kids, and telling them about Jesus. That's how the church grew so dramatically. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, talking to all ordinary Christians, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as, ho as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's within you. Speaking again to all ordinary Christians, the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 3.12, Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And one last one, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 to all Christians, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I hope you're getting my point that this is normal, healthy Christianity giving a reason for the hope that's within you, exhorting one another and encouraging one another every day, building up the body of Christ, not just pastors, preachers, missionaries, elders, but all Christians. This is our joy. This is our duty. And if you call yourself a Christian, realize this is part of the basic job description. Now, this work of making disciples, again, it obviously begins with evangelism, telling others about who Jesus is and what he has done, that he's the eternal son of God who came down from heaven to seek and to save the lost that he took on our flesh and blood, just like you and me, yet without sin. He lived a perfect life of obedience. He died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice that God raised him again three days later. And now he offers eternal life to all who turn to him in faith. That's where making disciples begins. But again, it does not end there. Once people trust in Jesus, we help them learn the Bible, help them learn doctrine, help them learn what it means to follow Jesus in day-by-day day life. We encourage them to unite with a good local church where they can be cared for and encouraged. And we do this over and over and over again until we see Jesus. 
Really, as making disciples, it works the other way as well, as others minister to us, speak God's word into our lives. Other believers really are an essential ingredient in your discipleship. Realize this, especially in light of this pandemic, you can't be a lone ranger Christian. Even if you've got Facebook and YouTube, you need other Christians speaking into your life, able to observe what's going on, praying with you, praying for you. We all need that. This is basic Christianity. So we fellowship with other believers to encourage our spiritual growth. We ask other believers to pray for us when we're down. Uh, we might seek their counsel, seek their advice when we're in a confusing situation. We need the ministry of other disciples just as much as other people need our ministry. Here's one final thought on this. Realize that whether you like it or not, you are making disciples. They just might not be disciples of Jesus. Realize that. Whether you understand what I'm saying, realize this or not, you are making disciples of others. They just might not be disciples of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, whoever you are, you have unavoidable influence on people. Your kids, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, dorm mates, you will inevitably influence them through what you say, through how you speak and live and behave. You will shape how they think to one degree or another. So you've just got to decide, how will I use that influence? Will I use that influence to point them to Jesus or away from Jesus? Will I use that? Will I use the Bible to do that? Or just sort of common sense jingles that are floating around in the world? For example, some of you have been very effective at making disciples of the Indianapolis Colts or of the Republican Party, or of the Democrat Party, or for Marvel movies, or The Simpsons, or Call of Duty, or Tucker Carlson, or Rachel Maddow, or whatever. You know what I'm saying. Whether you realize it or not, you are making disciples of one sort or another. They just might not be disciples of Jesus. So again, will you use the influence that you have to point people to the Savior of the world? Will you use the influence you have to help people think God's thoughts after him? For making disciples of Jesus is the duty and the privilege of every Christian. One final point. Consider with me lastly this morning how making disciples happens as we lovingly, prayerfully speak Bible truth into lives. Making disciples happens as we lovingly, prayerfully speak Bible truth into lives. Now again, at this point, you might be thinking, all of this is great. I can see that this ought to be the mission of every church, and I can see how this is the duty and the privilege of every Christian. But what does this really look like? How can, especially if I'm not, say, a pastor, a preacher, Sunday school teacher, how can I make disciples of others? Well, I'm glad you asked. You're welcome to turn there, or you just might listen carefully, but listen to Ephesians 4.15. 4, in Ephesians 4.15, God's word says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, if you're listening carefully, in this passage, all Christians are commanded to speak the truth in love to one another. And in this passage, we're promised that if we'll do that, we'll grow up into Christ, which, as I understand it, is just another way of talking about discipleship. And something I want to emphasize is that the truth we're to speak here is not just true information. Okay, and a lot of people misunderstand this passage. They think, okay, speaking the truth in love, I'm going to give you true data about math or about how to uh, fix your car or about how to make bagels or something like that. That's what it, if, I, if I speak that kindly, that's speaking the truth in love. I'm going to contend that that's, that that's certainly a good thing. You know, you don't 
ever lie, but that's not what this passage is talking about. Two reasons. First, like I said, the result of this speaking the truth in love is growing up in every way in Christ. If you're looking at your passage, that's what verse 15 says. If we'll speak the truth in love, we'll grow up in every way in Christ. As helpful as sharing accurate data about, say, mathematics or auto repair is, that does not work to mature us in Christian godliness. That does not conform us to the image of Christ. Uh, there are a lot of people that are going to know a whole lot more about auto repair than I ever will. We'll sadly spend eternity in hell. It's the truth of God's word which saves and transforms. It's speaking God's word which saves and sanctifies, you see? But more than that, if you're looking at the passage, notice what speaking the truth in love is contrasted with. The first word in verse 15 is rather. Remember hearing that? Rather speaking the truth in love. That indicates there's a contrast here. And if you go back into the context, Paul's just warned about being led astray by false teaching. Don't get tossed around by false teaching. Rather, speak the truth in love. What that means is that the opposite of speaking the truth in love is false doctrine. And the way that I don't get led astray by false doctrine is by speaking the truth in love. Again, true data about chemistry, biology is helpful, but that's not going to protect me from false doctrine. It's Bible truth that will. So again, here Paul is imagining all Christians lovingly speaking Bible truth to one another. You, ordinary Christian, opening your mouth as you have opportunity to give God's perspective on life and encouraging people to follow Jesus. Now, this ministry that we're talking about, prayerfully speaking Bible truth, it assumes a particular view of the Bible. It assumes that the Bible is more than just nice stories. It assumes that the Bible is more than just true information. Of course the Bible is true, but it's much more than that. It's the very breath of God, the word of God, that God uses to give sinners life and to change their lives. Or in the words of 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You've probably heard that old jingle before, all truth is God's truth. That's certainly true in one sense, but not all truth out there is life-giving, spirit-reviving, uh, eye-opening, like the truth of God's word is. And that's why this ought to be the first thing coming out of our lips if we want to make disciples. You see what I'm saying? Gordon Cheng puts this well in his wonderful little book. Uh, basically, if you get this book, uh, which is in our library, by the way, uh, you kind of got what I'm describing here very practically. But he says this, Gordon Cheng writes, As we speak the truth in love to one another, we are working alongside God himself. We are planting and watering, but God, through his Holy Spirit, is giving the growth. Unless God's Holy Spirit opens the heart of the person to hear and receive the message, our words will be useless, no matter how true they are or how clever we express them. We can't reach inside a person and change their heart for them. God's Spirit can. As he does so, the word can take root and grow and lead to change lives. We are God's fellow workers. This is an incredible privilege and also a great assurance for the anxious. We may be very hesitant about our own ability, we may be convinced that we will fail both in word and action. It is very reassuring and encouraging to recognize that God is our fellow worker and that he will give the growth. God's spirit will take our poor, weak words and use them with great power in the hearts, minds, and lives of our hearers. Now, what am I really getting at when I say that all of us ought to be speaking God's truth and love? Let me see if I can give you several illustrations of this. I'm going to give you a bunch, but hopefully they'll sort of fill in the categories so that you can imagine what this is going to look like in your own life. 
And the first thing I should say is that I'm not arguing that we need to go around being Bible verse quoting machines. Uh, don't, don't hear me say, there might be times when that's appropriate, helpful, you know, especially in personal evangelism or counseling to quote a specific chapter and verse, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Instead, what I'm saying is bringing God's truth to bear on a situation, on a relationship, on a conflict. Anytime you insert that into a conversation, God can use that powerfully to make disciples. So, for instance, say you and your son are at the dinner table and you're talking about these bullies at school, just hates these bullies, they torment him, he wishes they were dead. What can you do there? You could say, you know, son, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. So what would it look like in that context to love this enemy? Here's another example. Imagine a coworker. You know this coworker pretty well, and they're mentioning that they're going to get a divorce. They just can't stand their cranky spouse. Uh, their spouse is just the worst, and they're going to get a divorce. And let's imagine you know this spouse reasonably well, and you could just say, you know, friend, isn't it true that what God has joined together, let not man separate? Now, what's happened there? I haven't quoted a chapter or verse, but I've inserted God's perspective into the situation, and God can use that to convict him to open his eyes. Here's another example. Imagine there's a, another terrorist attack, which sadly there seem to happen regularly. You're at the mailbox and your neighbor says, can you believe what evil people will do in the name of religion? You could say something like this. You know, God actually hates it when people do evil in his name. He hates it when people uh, commit acts of evil and claim they're motivated by him. In fact, that's one of the most serious breakings of the which commandment is it? A third commandment, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And the Lord will judge anybody who takes his name in vain. You see what I did there? I didn't, again, quote a chapter or verse, but I brought God's perspective to bear, and God can use that. I'm sowing a seed that God's Spirit can use to convict them and to open their eyes. Another example. So you've got this coworker who doesn't know Jesus at all. Uh, doesn't even know Jesus exists. Thinks Jesus is kind of like the fairy, uh, tooth fairy or something like that. What you need to do is start slowly introducing them to Jesus, slowly inserting God into conversations. So they might ask you, what'd you do over the weekend? Uh, you might say, well, I went to church and I heard this rather mediocre sermon about making disciples. From time to time, you might mention how the Lord's helped you through some trial, how he's answered some prayer, how he's given you hope in this dark world. You'd be shocked how much hope uh, can be a foot in the door for evangelism because our world is so hopeless. Over time, you can increasingly talk about Jesus, maybe eventually ask the person, hey, you want to get together and talk about the Gospel of John? You know, take the long view here, think maybe two or three years, but hopefully you're getting what I'm trying to describe here, you speaking the truth in love to a neighbor that doesn't even know Jesus exists. One more example, let's say you're talking to your fellow church members. You know, you're in the hallway, you got your donut holes, chatting, and the the fellow church member kind of lets on that things aren't going too well in their marriage. Uh, they and their spouse just can't seem to get along, can't see eye to eye. Immediately, your radar ought to go off, and you think, how can I help this person? So you say, hey, let's get together for lunch this week. Uh, you guys get together at Olive Garden or something like that. You sit down, you ask them, tell, tell me what's going on. They, they talk for a good long while, and let them talk for a good long while. But then after they've talked for a good long while, you say, you know, several years ago, my spouse and I were in the very same situation. But this teaching here in James chapter 4, this teaching in Ephesians 5, this teaching in Malachi 3, it really helped me. Can I share it with you? And then after that, you promise to get together on every other week basis to talk about how life's going. Hopefully you can see through these illustrations what it might look like for you to lovingly, prayerfully speak Bible truth into other people's lives. 
Look at every single person you interact with, both believer and non-believer, as an opportunity to do this. Look at every single conversation, even the conversations you're going to have in the hall after this sermon, as an opportunity to do this. And then take advantage of those opportunities and start sowing seeds. But this is how we can make disciples. Well, we're almost done, but I hope I've persuaded you by now that our church has a mission. In fact, every church has a mission. And that mission is to make disciples. This is why we're here. This is why our church exists. To go out into the world and to lovingly speak God's word, to tell people about Jesus, to invite them to respond, and then to help them get organized into local churches. This is what we're to be busy doing until Jesus comes again. So in closing, my only question to you, my brothers and sisters, is this. Who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? If this is ordinary, healthy Christianity, who are you discipling? Who are those non-Christians you're trying to gradually introduce to Jesus? Those Christians you're trying to build up in the faith, who are you discipling? You might think, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a deacon, I'm not a Sunday school teacher. Well, do you know any people? Again, maybe that's where you begin. You don't have any friendships. Begin there. Start making friends. Start getting to know people. Obviously, this begins in the family, and that was the point of the last two sermons. See what you can do to encourage your husband, your wife, your kids, older brothers and sisters, discipling younger brothers and sisters. I wish I'd talk more about that. But that's really the primary context where we start making disciples. But it doesn't end there. Obviously, we try to disciple our fellow church members in the hallway, over coffee, throughout the week, in texts and emails. But it even doesn't stop there. Our entire world. Everybody needs to know about Jesus. Everybody needs to submit more and more of their lives to Jesus' lordship. And this is how you need to look at it. Look at yourself as the missionary to your neighborhood. I try to, think of, I, I try to train myself and my family to look at ourselves that way. We are the missionary to this neighborhood. God has sovereignly put us here so that we can tell other people about Jesus. Look at yourself as a missionary to your extended family members. Uncles, aunts, cousins, you're the light of the gospel in that context. Look at yourself as a missionary to your workplace. God has sovereignly put you in that workplace so that you can shine the light of the gospel. Again, I might anticipate an objection. You might think, I don't really like this. This isn't what I signed up for. It's kind of scary getting to know people and telling them about Jesus. Can't I just pay somebody else to do this? Well, again, I go back to what I said at the beginning. If this is the mission that Jesus has given us, we don't have the freedom to redefine that. We don't have the freedom to ignore it. When we become Christians, we take up the cross and follow Jesus, and therefore he tells us what to do. We can obey Jesus or disobey Jesus, but we can't change what he has said. So one more time I ask you, who are you discipling? Who are those people you're seeking to lovingly, prayerfully speak God's word into their lives? Who are you discipling? Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you that in your mercy somebody discipled us or somebody loved us, opened their mouths and told us about Jesus, maybe a parent, grandparent, Sunday school teacher, uh, preacher, whoever it was, we praise you for them. Uh, Lord, they were an expression of your mercy on us. We do pray that you would now use us as uh, vessels of mercy, to share the gospel with others, to make disciples of others uh, in our families, in this congregation, throughout our community, throughout our world. Uh, use us, we pray, to make, our, make disciples. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.